Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. Our guest this week is Reese Lauder, Head of Sales and Marketing at Friesla, a Washington-based company providing on-site, USDA-approved, fully customizable meat processing systems. With consumer demands for locally raised meat products rising, Friesla's customizable and modular systems allow farmers and ranchers to have complete control over on-site meat processing, from slaughter to sale. Between serving in communications with the Marines, the loss of a friend in combat, and navigating his family through his wife's battle with brain cancer, Reese has gained a clarity for his calling, caring for others. This drive to help cattle producers define opportunities and craft solutions best for their businesses is evident throughout our conversation. Truly one of the finest people I've had the privilege of meeting in a long time. Enjoy. Background-wise, grew up in rural Northwest Washington, you know, surrounded by by dairy farms. Didn't grow up on a farm, but grew up in a community that very much was supported by and still continues to be supported by those those farms and and uh, all the, the agricultural exports that come from them. So, um, you know, grew up with a with a great family. You know, I've got parents who are married for 45-ish years now and have, have four siblings and just a really tight community, um, tracing back to you know Dutch immigrants post World War II who came over to North America, settled, and over the years, then we eventually made our way out out west to Washington. But um, really, kind of the, the the genesis of my interest in serving was really um, just the the massive blessing of the community that I grew up in. I think that you know having the ability to be raised in a community where there's a lot of good people starting small businesses, um, either working on farms or other egg or, or just other um, small businesses. That entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit is really a huge part of our community. And, you know, being involved in our local church, being involved in the school, being involved in um, really helping the, the community to stay tight and tick. That's, that's what I grew up in. So, really what it came to is, you know, had a couple, couple guys that I grew up going to church with who both served in the Marine Corps. They were both 0331s machine gunners. And, um, I saw what they were able to give, but also what they got back from, from serving. Both of them served in Iraq, Cam and Greg. And, um, I, I looked at that and, and thought among probably about a hundred different other reasons, I thought to myself that if I don't, if I have the capability, the capacity and maybe a smidgen of the, the gift to be able to, to try to do this. Um, why would I not? So I, I dove in and um, dove in, joined the Marine Corps in 2009. Uh, Greg, if he ever listens to this, will get a kick out of this. But he had said, dude, you're too smart to, to be a grunt, which <laughs> I, I challenged that question, especially with you being a, a, an 03, Mike, because I, some of the smartest people I ever met in the Marine Corps were guys I, I worked with in the infantry. So anyway, I, I learned of other jobs that existed, one of them being uh, the public affairs field. And I always loved storytelling. I loved 
um, uh, you know, the creative side of that, but also, you know, being able to, the, the prospect of, of writing and also shooting photos really appealed to me. Where did this interest in storytelling come from? Was that something you had through your early childhood? Was it developed through experience? Where did that sort of originate? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, I learned, I actually really learned how and where this came from uh, in the past year. So my Opa, which is, you know, Dutch for, yeah. for grandpa, my Opa, my Opa Krika, uh, my mom's dad, he, you know, immigrated, grew up during World War II, um, immigrated, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a young man post, post-war. And um, back in the day, he was kind of a prolific writer and he, he was that guy that would annoyingly, you know, stop everybody in like a grocery store and have these like wild tales. And it's like, okay, like we got to go, but he's talking to everybody and, <laughs> you know, friends with everybody. But uh, Opa had this, this crack in his head that um, we couldn't know what it was from until we were all married. That was the, the family thing. But basically, <laughs> basically, there's like a hundred crazy stories, like you know, you know, was kidnapped by pirates, et cetera, et cetera. Every pro- prolific story that you could think of. Right. So anyway, I, Opa passed away this past year, and being at his funeral and hearing stories about him, even seeing photos, I, I learned that my love for storytelling came came from him. He was very good with that verbally, but he also did quite a bit of writing over the years. Um, you know, especially as kind of the kids were out of the house and he got a bit older, he wrote a lot. And I, I think in a, in a sense, I, I can't credit any, um, any outputs of my writing to myself. I think it's, it's kind of in my DNA, but I, I inherited that from, uh, fr- from Opa and others. Give me and, and others a sense of uh, what that training pipeline is like. You mentioned Marine Corps recruiting, uh, our boot camp. You mentioned MCT, yeah. which I thought was unusual given that MOS. Uh, but give us a sense of how they're preparing folks to do the job that you did. The course I went through was teaching you how to write, how to shoot, how to shoot uh, still photos, and do some video as well. Mm. And really, at the core of it, you know, uh, like I, I still think of myself predominantly, regardless of industry, as a communicator. I think. That's probably some by nature, but also very much by, uh, by what I was taught in the Marine Corps and what I had the benefit to learn. But learning everything from, you know, being able to write press releases to dealing with crisis communications, both for, uh, you know, bad situations or tragic situations and also good opportunities for us to tell the Marine Corps story. Yeah. So at, at its heart, that's, that's really the, the shortest way I would describe it. You know, our job was to tell the Marine Corps story and um, ironically, even maybe to uh, to the chagrin of Greg saying, uh, you know, don't don't join the infantry. I worked my way back to end up with the infantry, which hands down was was my my most special time in in the Marine Corps, and and really a, a time that I think shaped me into uh, you know both a better Marine than I was, but also I think left the most enduring lessons that I now carry forward post service. Yeah. How did you ultimately end up in the infantry from perhaps where your first assignment was? Initially, I worked with a base public up unit on Marine Corps Base Hawaii on the mm-hmm. island of Oahu, which was a phenomenal place to be stationed. What a yeah. cool opportunity that was. Um, and it still feels as much like home as any other place other than my home. Um, 
but yeah, getting to, you know, getting to a base public affairs shop, you, you know, I got exposure to working with a lot of different units, but what appealed to me most was third uh, Marine regiment was, you know, is located in uh, on K Bay. Mm-hmm. So between third Marines, fourth force reconnaissance company, okay. first battalion, 12th Marines and artillery unit. And then there is a, um, I think it was called third combat assault company, like an AV crew that was out there as well. Um, I, and then also there's, you know, Air Force PJs that would come in and jump mm. off the base as well as Navy SEALs. So I I just networked really, Mike, to be able to, you know, learn who good contacts were. And once I would come out and shoot and write stories that, you know, highlighted the work that they were doing and made them famous, then uh, typically I got invited back out. And, got it. Um, mm. there, there was also a good School of Infantry Detachment West there who I got tied in with their... Um, they had a scout sniper basic course as well as um, like infantry squad leaders course at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the all the McMap courses that would go mm-hmm. on. I wanted to shoot and write as much about like uh, you know getting in the dirt Marine Corps stuff, and I I got the opportunity to do a lot of that, which is really my favorite. Being out, being able to just be a fly on the fly on the wall, telling the stories of yeah. the you know the guys and gals who are willing to get dirty. You're, uh, you're wearing a memorial bracelet. Uh, I'm wondering if that was uh, from a particular deployment with an infantry unit or if there's a, a story or a memory from that Marine or sailor that you'd want to highlight or share. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, it's, it's a pretty, pretty important story to be able to tell. Right. And that's, that's why we wear these so that, mm-hmm. you know, for the, the gentlemen, ladies whose paths we cross that we can, carry that memory on. So there's a, a gentleman named Corporal Keaton Coffey. Um, Keaton was a dog handler. He was with 1st Law Enforcement Battalion. Um, you know, on our, I was deployed with 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines in Afghanistan, 2011 to 12. And that was the last, uh, that was the last deployment from a 3rd Marines, last combat Afghan deployment from mm-hmm. a 3rd Marines Battalion mm-hmm. uh, for Afghanistan. And um, anyway, Keaton supported us on a couple different operations. Um, he was the same age as me at, at that time. He was 21 years old, maybe 22. Um, we were born just a couple days apart. He was engaged to be married from a small town called Boring, Oregon. Um, grew up in a you know Christian family, just like I did. And um, just uh, I, I distinctly remember he he came like slick to us without a uh, a covering on his helmet and. Like I, I love my, uh, I love my, my senior enlisted folk out there, but I knew that it would not sit, sit well potentially at the uh, combat outpost where Keaton and I were both staying when we were pushing out on this, this supporting this large operation. And um, anyway, I remember him saying, nah, I've been with, I've been with Marsoc. I've been, I've been out with the special forces dudes. I'm not worried about that as details. And anyway, got to know him for a, for a brief period of time, but, um, but well quickly. And so Keaton was killed on May 24th, 2012. So we we actually had redeployed. I, I came back May 20th, 2012. And Keaton had um, was still there. He was with a different unit, but had been supporting us. And I, I believe he was supporting a uh, either a recon or Marine Raider unit and, and was shot and killed, um, was shot and killed during an operation. Um, the other gentlemen were actually a dust off crew that supported us. Yeah. Uh, four four soldiers, Sergeant Schaefer, Sergeant Workman, uh, Chief Warrant Officer Varane, Chief Warrant Officer Johnson. Um, we had a, a large suicide bombing at one of our 
um, Afghan National Police partner stations. And um, I wasn't there at the time, but I was able to be part of the documentation of all of the uh, the triage and, and um, support from our, our corpsmen that went into, you know, working with casualties. We had 10, 10 Afghans that were killed and another, I believe, eight or nine, uh, you know, wounded. And so this dust-off crew, they went out in a pair of two. And one of the, the as I understand it, the Detrace helicopter, um, you know, the uh, the security bird, if you will, mm-hmm. crashed and, and these four men passed. And I know, um, I know some of them had, some of them had families, but I, I distinctly remember we had a phenomenal CEO called uh, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Palma. I, mm-hmm. yeah, I think he's a full bird now, but mm-hmm. um, he came into the battalion aid station as all of this triage was happening. And I remember him saying, Hey, we just had four, four angels and that the dust off bird had crashed and felt like the, the air was just like fully sucked out of this room. And I'll never forget that. And, and I, so I wear that to um, just be able to share the story like this. You came back in 2012, end of 2012. Yeah. And, and kind of during the deployment, I, you know, be, I think being with a Victor unit, you know, whether you're an O3 or not, it's, it's such a high, it's such a high operational tempo. And I think at the time I wasn't like calmed down enough that I could think about becoming a civilian. Right. So while I was, um, at least not in a constructive manner. Mm-hmm. So while I was deployed, I, I was actually on Marines.mil at the time. And I saw a photo taken by a guy from recruiting station Seattle. And I was like, what? I, I just had never thought of the fact that even though I'd interacted with these people, I'd never thought of the fact that there was a marketing and public affairs job, you know, at mm. each recruiting station. And I thought I should hit this dude up and see if, see when he's rotating out. Cause could that be a possible fit to, uh, to go replace him. So in, in the meantime, there was an, a potential opportunity to go work with a, a good friend and mentor at the Pentagon. And it was really appealing from a career perspective, but you know, my wife and I, Chrissy and I were, were married for a couple of years at that point. And, um, you know, we're just starting a family and it was like, you know, kind of that, that, that crux that all of us come to, mm-hmm. right. You know, how do I balance my, my desire, motivation, um, thoughts of, of moving up and moving on to the next thing with the fact that, you know, that is still second priority to my family. And, um, in kind of reconciling those, then this opportunity lined up. So I was able to re-enlist and then uh, do a PCS permanent change of station move to Seattle. So I could be two hours from home mm-hmm. and more importantly, in, in a lot of ways that my wife could be close to our family and her family. And, um, but also I, I saw it as a great bridge, right? I, I knew that I needed to take my first four years where I worked predominantly as a writer and photographer, like developing messages that going into this, uh, recruitment marketing job, that that would give me skills to transition eventually into, you know, the business world where, you know, I, I'd need to be able to stop talking Marine and be able to, to kind of bridge gaps, um, you know, and communicate as a, as a real human, just getting right. But you know, you know what I mean? So walk walk across that, that transition bridge for us. How, how did you know the time was right? And then what was that path to go from this duty station in, in Seattle? This is a a bit of a wild story. So, you know, I, I like to, I like to say very much, you know, deeply believe that 
I make my plans and then God typically shows me an incredibly different way that does not align <laughs> with my own plans. Yeah. So yeah, really what happened is I ended up stateside getting in a car accident. I was T-boned and due to injuries, I ended up being medically retired. Oh, so boy. it's, it was a very weird thing to happen because I have a couple of friends, one friend specifically who lost his legs with three, five and sang in. And I remember talking to him once, like, I think I carried some, some guilt for, you know, being medically retired where, you know, my injuries are not visible in the sense that I'm not missing a limb and I'm still dealing with them now, eight years later, um, eight, nine years later. But I remember him saying to me, he's like, you can't compare, you know, we're both medically retired, but you can't compare your injuries to mine. Right. Like it, it, you didn't ask for this just like I didn't ask for that. So I think in a, in a sense that like helped it to feel okay. Right. That, um, that this, this happened and I, then had the opportunity to make the best of it. So I was, I was, uh, I had been promoted up to staff sergeant and hmm. I was medically retired, like basically right around my eight year mark. And so it wasn't the plans I had, but you know, it gave an opportunity then to pretty quickly start thinking about what's going to be next. So at that time, you know, my wife and I had bought a home, renovated it. We we're looking at selling and, and making a move up North back close to family. So I had gone, I had been using tuition assistance in the evenings to, to start back on night school. So I was, you know, I plugged through uh, basically the third year of my, most of the third year of uh, an undergrad in marketing. And so um, meanwhile, I've got a contract with Penguin Random House doing some, hmm. uh, some work as a, an editor and um, also providing some photos and some PR work for the launch of a book written by a state department official. Uh, Kale Weston, who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan alongside some Marines for seven years, no big deal. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so so that led me to start a marketing company through which I did that work. I went back to school, did an undergrad in you know finished my undergrad in marketing. But I think the the key component of this story is that um, you know two months after my medical retirement, I woke up to my wife having a seizure. And that ended up being discovered, you know, within a couple of days as being brain cancer. So then she went to, or actually before we knew it was, was brain cancer specifically, she had emergency brain surgery. So they removed, you know, about a third of her brain and, you know, on, on one side. And then from there began, you know, a journey that encompassed about a year and a half of, of, you know, seven weeks of radiation and then a year and a half of chemotherapy. And um, yeah, we had been given a, a diagnosis of, you know, a, a very short diagnosis, put it that way. And, you know, we, we looked at it really through eyes of faith, like, you know, God's equipped us for everything else, including this. And we just have to, you know, put our heads down, you know, be, be patient, trust, but also make good use of the time we had together. And I would say that whole experience through Chrissy's brain cancer um, really, I think it matured me in a different way very quickly than even being in the Marine Corps had. Yeah, the Marine Corps does that too in, in different different ways. But I think it gave me the gut check that, you know, my next chapter in life was not just mine, that I really needed to be present for Chrissy and our, our two kids then. And, you know, to be able to, to focus on reconciling my next steps for transition together with the fact that I was very much needed at home. And so ju just to not keep, make that a cliffhanger, we are thankful to God every day for 
the remission of Chrissy's cancer. So it's been, still has terminal brain cancer. It's still there, but it's not growing. And so we just, we just have, you know, a lot of thankfulness every day for the fact that she's here. And I've, I've got my partner to, uh, to enjoy life with and to, to help, you know, raise our kids. So yeah, that, that was a, um, that was a significant, that is a significant part of the story, but it also helped to shape kind of um, where to move, you know, where to move next. So finished an undergrad in marketing, um, took on a full load of clients through Lead Creative, through marketing, the marketing company I'd started. And then at that time, kind of two things happened. Uh, first, uh, a tech, tech company, Pacific East, that I'd worked, that I was doing some consulting work for, offered me a role. I ended up being in a, a, a role there, a, a director role, and then eventually a VP role leading marketing and also, um, you know, doing sales in their data services. And um, alongside that, even prior to, I had been talking with my dad about, um, my dad, Bob, about this, um, some ideas related to mobile harvest units at the time, mobile slaughter units. And it really piqued my interest that there was a big opportunity here for a lot of um, value provision and value capture around the meat processing space. And, you know, early on, then I helped with naming the company um, and, and just do dove into, you know, pu pulling a team together to build their website. I wrote all the copy and you know, all the, the verbiage for the site, did art direction, pulled together the assets to, to tell the story. And then over the last five years have, have, you know, kind of on the sidelines been helping. And eventually went back to school, went, went to the University of Washington where Chrissy has had all of her brain cancer treatment, had the, had the gift of, of going through and earning a, a, an MBA there and um, being uh, in a lot of ways uh, over my head with the, uh, the big brains that I was um, working alongside. Shout out to, uh, to Team Red and, and how they supported <laughs> me in year two. But, but yeah, being able to, to do all those things, I, you know, consistently through kind of just have viewed um, the opportunities that I've been given as, you know, I got, I need to be a good steward of the resources I have. And eventually, you know, my love for this, the concept of stewardship and also the, the prospect of being able to come and, and help build on the work that we're doing at Farisla became real enough to where it was time to uh, to wrap up my four years or so of work at Pacific East and, and make the jump. And so that I did that recently. What you did not mention in that story is any connection or familial history or overlap aside from growing up in the dairy community of meat yeah. processing. And so when you're talking to Bob about, I have this idea about these mobile meat processing facilities, I mean, where where on earth did that come from? And how did you know it would be a yeah. fit with what your dad's doing? My dad had been previously working at a separate company and had kind of become the, the subject matter expert for these mobile slaughter units. So there had been two that had been built and used in Washington state, um, but, you know, kind of very preliminary models, you know, that, that were kind of getting toward that idea but then he had sold, I think, the third unit that then was under USDA inspection and started to, you know, basically sunk his teeth into that space to because to become the SME on, on um, you know, the, the design, manufacturing and implementation, the use of, of mobile slaughter units and or mobile harvest units, as we now refer to them. And um, eventually, you know, he, he looked at, hey, 
is it just the manufacturing or are there, as he was coming to learn over the, the number of years, 10 years or so working with these, um, there's a lot of other needs and opportunities, right? To, to be able to um, come alongside a farmer or rancher who wanted to do this or a co-op who wanted to do this, but says, you know, I know my space, I have a cow calf, calf operation, mm -hmm. for example, where I have an existing processing facility and I want to add some capacity to be able to go out to a farm or a ranch. Um, but there, there was a lot of need there to help fill in the blanks from with everything from the efficiency of operations to the uh, movability or, or, or mobile nature of it to uh, working through all of the red tape as it relates to the USDA. So that's eventually what led him to then, you know, peel off and, and launch into Frisla. So, you know, I like to think that with Frisla, with our mobile and modular meat processing systems, you see, like you see physical, you know, the physical manifestation is a, a very large piece or pieces of equipment interlocking into a, into a, a meat processing system. But that's, that's the end result that is seen and used, but there's a ton that happens in order to get there. And, you know, we believe in being kind of a left seat, right seat partner to, you know, those, those people pursuing an opportunity of existing, you know, either expanding their existing processing capacity or vertically integrating to where, you know, they, they do their own production. Maybe they're, you know, they're breeding, they're raising, they're finishing their cattle, but they want to be able to control, you know, a new market, for example, by going direct to consumer or being able to wholesale that beef for whatever species they're processing from there. So I think that that was what the opportunity was. And it, it just was fortuitous in that I was then pursuing an undergrad in marketing and had, mm. uh, you know, an opportunity to work on something together with my dad and the eventual team, but, but also to um, find a new mission. You mentioned uh, the sense of independence that this particular industry used to have and um, a competition that I think is arising out of this particular space of meat processing one I think was only furthered by the COVID uh, pandemic and, a, and yeah. a realization of where that product comes from. Can you give us a sense of maybe through a case study or a, a previous customer, how um, a processor, a cow-calf operator, a group of processors would engage and utilize um, FreeSales product? Sure. Um, I'll highlight a couple, a couple case studies. And, and I think just to, just to preface that, um, you know, in 2020, when COVID started and, and all of these meat packing plants started shutting down, you know, Friesla was already existed for two years at that point, but um, we're, we're really focused on the mobile, you know, mobile harvest side. And in looking at it, there was a bigger opportunity, right? And, and, you know, Bob really, really drove this, but that what if there was a full end-to-end -end processing facility able to be built in a modular format so that these are, you know, 12 by 50 foot modules, they're, they're big. They're certainly not small pieces of equipment, but they're movable, right? They can be put on a low boy and, you know, driven from our manufacturing facility in Washington to Texas or out to the East coast or wherever. So, um, taking a modular format where you can do, um, you know, knock and bleed up through, you know, uh, removing hide removal, evisceration, um, chilling that carcass down to USDA required temps, 
aging that carcass for, you know, species that require some age. And then moving into a cut and wrap facility and a finished goods freezer to be able to do that on site. Um, and, and in a linear, in a, uh, an efficient linear workflow that could be done on, you know, on a farmer or ranchers on their terms, on their time, and specifically on the site of their choosing provided, of course, as you go through, you know, getting approval with your state and municipality, um, that, that really was born out of that COVID time. So March, April, 2020, we saw a pretty big spike in, uh, in outreach to us. And that's, that's really kind of the genesis. So from there, you know, I'll, I'll give a couple, a couple use or case studies, if you will. So we have, we, we installed, we built and installed a system for an organization called producer partnership. Uh, Matt Pearson and his team have, have done a phenomenal job um, getting that up and running in their community, but really uh, it's a kind of a, there's a few different ranchers involved but um, they're taking, you know, cool cows and, and other cows that are able to be, you know, they've kind of reached end of useful life, if you will, to where they can be processed into ground. And they're doing that to be able to donate that ground beef into the community to support mm -hmm. um, whatever organization may be in need, whether that's a food bank or otherwise. So uh, I think their, their tagline is something like, you know, Montanans helping Montanans fight hunger, something to that effect. So they're the first um, USDA, ins USDA inspected um, nonprofit meat processing facility in, in the U.S. of that kind. And so, you know, between, between them doing, you know, basically building a, a, high, a, a high, uh, high throughput ground beef line, um, we have another customer who we installed a system, a modular system on uh, the Big Island of Hawaii for them to be able to you know, bring back some additional processing capacity to, to the big island. Whereas previously they'd been, you know, finishing, raising, finishing and, and shipping their cattle off island to the mainland. You know, just think even logistically, you don't have to be a genius to know that that's, that's a big lift in terms of, you know, getting animals to a processor, but instead being able to, you know, vertically integrate and do that um, on their own is, is a, you know, it, we, we see it as a, an excellent option to, uh, to introduce some, some more competition into the market. When, um, I'm, I'm you might've caught the, uh, Will Harris, uh, from White Oak Pastures episode yeah. on the, on the Joe Rogan experience. He talked about regenerative systems being replicable, not scalable. Uh, when you look yeah. at how, you compete as Friesla with the larger meat processing facilities. Do you see that in a similar way for scale? Your system is replicable, not necessarily scalable, or are you looking at attacking the competition in a different way or scaling the business in a different way? That's a great question. And scalability, scalability, modularity and scalability are, are huge. So if anybody goes on our website to our, you know, freesla.com to our meat processing systems page, you'll see kind of some, some illustrations that show the scalability modularity of, of our PS1, um, you know, our full meat processing system. So we build these so that on site, you know, we could retrofit and install an additional module. So say, for example, 
you know, our carcass AP cooler holds a uh, hundred sides or, you know, 50 head of beef. Then if there was, you know, an interest in just either a, a production capacity increase, or let's say that that processor wants to be able to rent hanging space and wanted to add, you know, an additional capacity for a hundred sides, we could manufacture and come on site um, you know, basically cut cut through the wall in in a pre you know pre framed uh, pre framed opening and be able to install that right on site. So from a scalable perspective, it is scalable. It's scalable to a certain point, right? There, you know, there there we're not a plant in the Midwest that's going to purport to do five thousand head a day, right? That's that's not going to be our market. But we also know that, you know, the up and coming generation of, of discerning consumers who want to know where their meat's from and want to have certainty that it's being processed in a way that, um, you know, honors the, uh, the hard work done by the farmer and also the animals, um, that there's, there's a place and a way to do that. And, and that's in, you know, that's in our systems. We, we really are more focused on, you know, small to medium sized producers who want to be able to vertically integrate want to be able to expand their existing capacity. Maybe they're adding on to a brick and mortar facility that they already own and are, are operating. And, you know, we're, we're, we're just, I think, looking at a bit of a, a, a different market than, you know, big facilities will. I, I can only imagine that some um, producers who are listening are saying, well, this all sounds like where I want to go, but doggone, these, these things are probably not cheap. Um, how how have you all in the past um, interacted or solved this issue of perhaps one producer buying a modular system for their operation? Have you seen any pooling of resources or pooling of production in co-op type setups that allow multiple producers to come together to acquire their own localized facility? Yeah, so we have a, a mobile facility that's running up here in Washington State to where, you know, is being operated together with a co-op. Um, we've we've built mobile facilities for others. You know, we've, we've got some in California too, mobile harvest units that are being used in a co-op type format. So, you know, every proliferation that you could think of in terms of um, how people actually get, a, a, you know, either singularly or as a group get a unit purchased um, you know, there, there's some pretty interesting financing options, grant opportunities, but also you're right. Some, some banding together to say, Hey, there's an, there's a need here. I don't know that this is something I want to pursue solo, but often, you know, our customers are often comprised of, uh, either companies built up of some great individuals or, you know, having multiple, you know, multiple stakeholders are kind of weighing in on, on the process. There's such an entrepreneurial approach to that uh, flexibility that you described in in not only yeah. the modularity and the configuration of the physical system but in the way the system itself can be configured for multiple species to the yeah. entire process of how you all engage with prospective customers there's an optionality and an entrepreneurial emphasis around financing and around yeah. uh, structuring of a relationship to how these pieces operate and it just, it feels like it matches well with the, the, the gap in the market right now of smaller, a need for smaller localized production. 
And and just to qualify that too, it's it's cool over the course of you know my still young life, but to be able to look back on like all of the things that you've been led through as uh, preparation for where you are, right? I even look at my my dad Bob's story too. You know, he also doesn't have a meat processing background, but he has a manufacturing background, both as you know a sales leader, but more, you know, in many ways, more relevant as a GM of, you know, a, a printing plant that was acquired a couple times and um, grew very significantly. So being able to run, you know, pro or uh, operations across multiple printing plants across the US, um, he had been involved in starting and, and then selling a, a, an agribusiness when he was younger as well, where they were doing their own manufacturing of equipment. So all of the things like we, we, we like to think, and especially getting out of the military, we like to think there's, there's like a linear path, right? I'll go get my PMP and then I'll do an MBA and then I'll get my tech job. And it, it's not linear. There's, there's zigs and zags. I think we take the zigs and then God's like, no zag. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, ha having that entrepreneurial spirit, I think there's, there's so many veterans who probably already have that before they join. And I think in a that's that's amplified or made exponential through through service, just in being resourceful, getting things done, but also being in a respectful way, you know, willing to kind of challenge the status quo. Yeah. I think that's in a summarized way. That's why I feel like we're in a we're in a really good but but unique position to. Um, you know, be able to bring value in a, in a way that um, it, it just hasn't been in, in the mobile and modular space. What other challenges are you all operating through right now as a, as a growing business in a, in a market that's competing against a, a large competitor or group of competitors? Yeah, I think one of the big challenges is awareness, right? And mm -hmm. that maybe isn't the first thing you would think about. Like, yeah, the, the supply chain stuff, that's all, that's obvious and intuitive to anyone who's um, had issues with getting certain things, whether you're ordering from Amazon mm -hmm. or you're going to your local grocery store and, you know, the same thing that you always buy for breakfast is not the same thing you're able to get consistently, right? So we've all felt that pinch. And, and you know, I think anyone who works with, manufacturing and design of equipment knows that that's that's a reality um but really i think one of the one of the big um it's simultaneously a challenge but also a, a big opportunity is is awareness right um often people say to us like i had no idea you existed um and and it's it's like a shocking thing a lot of times to people who have a real interest really quickly because they're like, this is such a, like, this is such an intuitive solution. And, but it, it hasn't existed in the market prior to really prior to us diving deep. Hmm. So that, that means that, you know, we have a huge opportunity to educate people. I want to close um, with a final question around, is there anything that we haven't talked about or that you haven't described or mentioned that uh, you feel like we should? Yeah, thanks, Mike, for you know your thoughtful questions and observations about Freesla. And I, I think I'll close on a a non kind of non business related note. Um, getting out of the military is not like we talked about it being not a mil uh, not a linear path. And 
it's not an easy thing. I think in a sense, like I've said this to other people too, that like, it's almost like you're creating a checklist, right? You tell yourself that here's this checklist I need to complete to like be successful in my transition. That that's just garbage. Like it, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of had that and I took the right steps with getting to school and, you know, go do your VA claim, like take care of your, your body's probably not the same as it was when you went in. So protect yourself and your family by going, doing your VA claim, like be proactively and practically take that stuff on. But I think one of the most enduring things that I could share with people who've, who've asked about the, the military transition, it's, Take, take care of yourself in all of the dimensions that you'll probably not think of um, until you're, you're really in the thick of it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast brought to you by AGD Consulting. After a conversation like that and listening to all of the trials Reese went through, I found myself wondering if the reason I haven't experienced similar trials means that I'm less worthy as a Christian, or perhaps I'm not strong enough to endure them the same way a man like Reese was. But instead of continuing down that dark path, I have to remind myself that maybe God put someone like Reese in my life to help teach me something, rather than be envious of his struggles. What that is, I'm not sure yet, but what I do know is how fortunate this community is to have a man like Reese in its midst. There's such an entrepreneurial approach to the flexibility of engaging with an organization like Freesla, from the modularity of their physical systems, optionality around financing, the way it can be configured for multiple species, to the entire process of how a potential producer or co-op engages with Freesla. It's such an elegant solution to part of the problem of how to address this growing consumer preference towards more locally sourced higher quality protein. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and until next time, stay frosty.